You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event MMA Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com. And joining us, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how are you doing this week? I'm doing okay, Chad. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Just no new ailments that you want to inform us of or anything like that? You know, I didn't really want to inform people of the original ailment. But oh, that's right. I forgot about that aspect of it. I will say that uh, I'm healing up well. It turns out I had the, the MRSA in my arm. Uh, I had to go to the doctor, and they cut that thing open and drained it, and it was highly unpleasant. They I, stuffed a bunch of gauze in there, and I've been going back like every day or other every other day sometimes to have them remove the gauze and put more gauze in there, and it hurts like a mofo. Now, I know that's true because you text messaged me a photo <laughs> yeah, of, of the hole in your arm. Yeah, which I knew wasn't, you would hate that. It wasn't that huge. Like, I was kind of expecting a bigger hole Well, the hole, it's after not, I got the, after getting the complete cell from you. It's not, the hole was not like, it's not like staff ate a hole in my arm. The hole was surgically made. Um, so they were able to limit it in size. Um, I had to, I did not look when they first did it. It was super, like, tender and, like, big swollen gross thing and they cut it open uh and i could not bring myself to look at it for the first few appointments uh and then when i finally did look after it had, you know it's much better by the time i took that picture and said it to you the weird thing about it is that you look like you're basically looking into your arm and you can't like the hole is deep enough that it gets dark before i can see the end of it so and you don't know what's down there no it's a china I, for all you know i'm looking into the void chad and the void is looking back at me now, see, the weird thing about this story to me is as much as you allege that you didn't want the information to be public. Uh, well, it's out there now. Yeah, you man, you took it and ran with it. You made it your own. Like, you basically couldn't stop tweeting about it, frankly. Well, it was, I will say it was on my mind uh, quite a bit last week because, um, you know, when your arm is hugely swollen with a antibiotic-resistant uh, infection, yeah, you're going to think about that. You're going to think about that a little bit. Uh, kind of keeps you up at night. Well, I'm glad to hear that you're on the mend. I know you are. I'll take down that Craigslist ad that I posted about an MMA podcast host. I replied to that with a topless photo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll get. Don't don't call us. We'll call you, Ben. We got music this week. This week's music comes to us from listener Michael Jung or Michael Young. Let's go Young. Young. After you know the classic fashion. Yeah. He plays bass, guitar in a rock band called Some Gifts. Okay. In Los Angeles. Uh, they're actually super, super good. As I suppose, maybe you have to be if you play in a rock band in Los Angeles. Uh, if you like what you hear from them, you can find more of their stuff at their Bandcamp page, somegifts.bandcamp.com. They also claim to have a website, www.somegiftsband.com, though uh, it wasn't working when I checked that out earlier today. So Get on that shit, Some Gifts. You're missing your big break, Some Gifts. Literally tens of people are going to hear you now. Three rounds this week, as usual, in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, if nothing else, the UFC 183 main event gave us the Stockton lean, the mid-fight wedgie pick, and conclusive proof that both Anderson Silva and Nick Diaz are as crazy as they are tough. And in round number two, 
You know, a lot of people call them weight limits, but in MMA, we just prefer to think of them more as weight suggestions. Weight guidelines. And in round number three, we spent much of the last year talking about how the middleweight division was awesome. Will we spend the bulk of this year talking about how the middleweight division is a hot fucking mess? All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But right now, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first bit of listener mail comes this week from Johnny from Huddersfield, England. Not a real place. I don't no believe way so. it's a real place. Never heard of that. Uh, he writes, I just read the judges' scorecards for the Misha Tate-Sarah McMahon fight, and I'm utterly bewildered by them. Okay, he does sound British. Yeah. <laughs> I bet people from Huddersfield feel utterly bewildered a lot of the time. Monocles think? just be falling out of their face. Dave Hagen who is a judge, in case you didn't know, uh, scored at 29-28, giving Tate rounds two and three. Lester Griffin, 29-27, giving Tate rounds two and three with round two, a 10-8. I believe he means round three there, right? Uh, Glenn Trowbridge, 28-28, giving McMahon rounds one and two, but giving Tate a 10-8 in round three. Now, I watched these fights, and anyone else with any fight knowledge knows that the fight was a close 29-28 with McMahon taking the first, Tate clawing back with the second, and a late close submission attempt and a clear-cut third round. Uh, there were no 10-8s. What's, what's really going on? Discuss this shit. Talk it up, gentlemen. Very British touch at the end there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. The, this is one of those, right, where we say, like, the scores got weird, but the right person won nope. in the end. nope. You don't think so? Absolutely. You think not. Sarah McMahon won that fight? Absolutely. You crazy? Is there a question about that? Like I thought that the the uh, that the I see I was at a friend's birthday party on Saturday night, which is the reason I didn't come to your house and the reason that we didn't do a breakfast of champions uh, audio extra for UFC 183. You're eating haggis, if I'm not mistaken. I was. Yeah, it was delicious. By the way, I don't believe you. Um, so I didn't I didn't see all of this as it was going down. I didn't. I didn't watch the Sarah McMahon Misha Tate fight until uh, the day after, but I thought that w- was the controversy not that the wrong person won because I thought it, that we had twenty nine twenty eight for Sarah McMahon was the obvious choice here. Really? Yeah, I did not. I thought twenty nine twenty eight for Misha Tate. Okay, well maybe we should talk about this because um, see my response to this question was going to be if nothing else I think what this fight proved was that we have no fucking idea what we're scoring yeah. in these fights and uh you know how you're distributing points etc cetera, etc. Cetera. So maybe you I, I don't think you disagree with me here but like Sarah McMahon obviously won the first round Misha Tate obviously run, won the third round uh so the second round is the thing that's really in question. Right. Um and I can't for the life of me figure out how you can give the second round to Misha Tate after Sarah McMahon spent the first four minutes of the round whipping the shit out of her on the feet. And then uh, Sarah McMahon, I believe, scores the takedown. Misha Tate reverses it uh, and catches her in a, an ultimately unsuccessful one-armed guillotine. Now, I, I will admit Sarah McMahon appeared to be in some discomfort there. Uh, and I, I'm willing to sway around to someone on the basis of an unsuccessful submission attempt if nothing else happened during that round. But, like, that was clearly Sarah Mc, McMahon's round before that. And, like, if we're going to get into the to a situation where we're trying to, like, uh, differentiate the severity of, a, of an unsuccessful submission attempt, then we are going down a road that I feel is a very dangerous place to be. Yeah, okay. About that, I would say, for one thing, I think you're overselling it with the whipping the shit out nope, of her on the feet. No, absolutely not. Uh, I would also say, though, that 
near submission attempts are not created equal. Like there's a difference between, you know, a submission attempt that uh, allows you to completely reverse position and get into a dominant position and, and do some work there. Uh, and there's a one where, you know, you try a triangle off your back. Um, the person's never really in any serious danger and they fight through it. I, I mean, I, I would have to go back and, and watch the fight again. I didn't see a whole lot of people really clamoring that Sarah McMahon should have won that fight. I would say when, when Sarah McMahon gets up there at the end of the third round, certainly doesn't look like she thinks she's going to no, win she it. No, did, she didn't help herself with her, uh, with her demeanor. Thing, man. You but again, the thing where you get up and you put your hands in the air and you jog around like you're champion of the fucking all world. All right, three things. Number one, to make that point, again, is bullshit, right? Because we don't <laughs> want that to affect a judge's decision, like how you act after the fight, even though we all sort of... Uh, Admit that it does, unfortunately. Uh, second thing, when you talk about those submission attempts not being created equal, we're getting very much into the territory that I think is really weird and dangerous. It's, and, and I, I kind of agree with you. Like, uh, if you are straight up caught in a submission attempt where you are about to be choked unconscious, like, and you get saved by the bell, uh, then I'm okay with with like awarding the, the the aggressor a lot of points for their submission attempt. I if, didn't. If you I didn't a, think that this was that situation. Uh, how about if you get caught in a submission attempt that's just wrenching your shoulder or your elbow or something, and you're not tapping, but it's clear that it's hurting you, and it might diminish you later in the fight. See, that's a, that's we're now we're getting into all this weird gray area, man. We're like, of course we are. If you want to describe like a a, a Kimura attempt that could go 110 different ways, I like, like how I, you pronounce Kimura, I have no idea how how you are going to score that. And like, if you're on top of somebody with a one armed guillotine that that like they're probably not going to tap to, and you're not going to finish, I'm just not giving you that round. Like, okay. When you lost the bulk of the rest of the round. Third thing before we move on, I don't think that we should underestimate the effect of Joe Rogan and Mike Goldberg vocalizing the idea that Misha Tate was stealing that round with that submission attempt. Okay. Uh, because they did say that. And but the judges didn't hear that. Because no, they, they didn't. But I'm, we're talking about uh, people clamoring for the wrong decision, I think, to use your verbiage there. But like, I think that that does affect people and affects how we view fights after they happen. Okay, that that's fair. Uh, you know, and I will have an article coming out soon, shameless plug, uh, talking about the way athletic commissions assess their own judges, um, because especially California and Nevada, they do do that. It doesn't get a lot of publicity, but I've been talking to them recently about how they go about looking at it. And one of the things they look at is to see uh, when a judge is in the minority a lot, when he's, you know, there's split decisions and one judge is against the other two people pretty consistently you know and when they say that when you look at a fight like this where no two judges have the same scorecard basically what they say is well shit that one's kind of all over the place uh and i think that that's kind of the fact that you and i can sit here and disagree so vehemently over it tells you like it's just one of those fights where it's kind of a coin flip uh depending on how it's going to go and i think part of the problem is that in mma when it comes to scoring we don't have a whole lot of uh clear this equals that kind right. of thing like you're talking about with the submission attempts or like we we talk about with 10-8 rounds what equals a 10-8 round in mma like in boxing you can say if there's a knockdown it's probably a 10-8 round right uh, and this and, fight is a good example of that too because yeah. if you're going to give misha tate a 10-8 round in the third i don't know how you don't give sarah mcmahon a 10-8 round in the first Broke except damn that, orbital yeah and, yeah, and yeah except right. that misha tate battled back with like a non-existent triangle attempt and some punches to the calf at the end of that, well, you're at just, the end of that round, you're just kind of being a jerk to Misha. No, Tate I'm just saying, point. like that's 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 what happened. This was a great fight, frankly. This is a real crackerjack. All praise be to Tate and McMahon for that. Yes. 
Yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, I guess that the the moral of the story here is if you get in a fight like that, uh, you got to kind of expect it to be all over the place, and that's just and maybe going to be act a, like you thought you won. Act like you thought that you absolutely demolished her, and all that's left to do is to uh, be showered with praise. Yeah. The second second uh, bit of listener mail this week comes to us from Lucas Cattell. He writes, "So the UFC raised pay per view prices and looked at the current schedule. Well, and looking at the current schedule, well, it seems odd." Other than just flat out, let me start having this again. a hard time. I am, man. I can only see this out of one eye. That's one problem. So the UFC raised PPV prices and looking at the current schedule, well, it seems odd other than to just flat out make money. None of the upcoming pay-per-view scream must-see TV and even worse, feature fighters under 170 pounds at the top of the card. What gives? Wow, that even worse is a real slap in the face for the for the little people. Yeah, we're going to have to agree to disagree yeah, on that one. I think because especially when you look at what's going on down there at lightweight and featherweight these days. Uh, hell, even bantamweight, man. I, I don't know if you can make the claim that just because they're, they're tipping the scales a little lighter means those fights aren't worth paying for. But I do think that we have to talk about this whole, you know, raising the permanent pay-per-view price uh raise and how the UFC has justified it so far because as we mentioned in last week's Breakfast of Champions email newsletter which if you haven't signed up for by the way sign up for that shit because it's awesome and it's free um, the statement that the UFC released to, to MMA Junkie to explain why they were doing that uh, was one that their costs had gone up right and then saying that they think that the, the UFC pay-per-view is still a tremendous value for the fans uh, because you get advanced analytics Real-time interviews, a phrase that means absolutely nothing, because what what's a real-time interview? Like, it's not sped up? <laughs> like, it's not in slow motion? Because it doesn't even mean live. Uh, and uh, one other thing that they... they well, and I think it's also, it's also worth mentioning as part of that explanation. Why, why did their costs go up? I wonder aloud on our podcast, like what, what could lead your, your costs to go up? Could it perhaps be in, in increasing your schedule by like 200% over the last half decade? Like, could that have anything to do with your costs going up? And now you want to do shows in Ireland and the Philippines and you know, okay. probably greasing some palms over there in China and whatnot. Yeah. We don't, it doesn't say exactly why their costs went up. I mean, they could just say, like, I don't know, maybe they think production costs or whatever just went up industry-wide. Uh, here's the quote, by the way. UFC considers its pay-per-view events to be a tremendous value for the consumer, and it continues to make that value proposition better every year through features such as advanced analytics, real-time interviews, and breaking news. So those are the things that I think is, is worth, you know, the extra $5, which, I mean, come on. Those are just some things you thought up after you decided to raise the price. Do you think, are those, is that reasoning better or worse than just because? <laughs> Honestly, I feel like just cause, uh, or like, hey, we need the money, I think would be more honest. Uh, and you're right. Then the question would be, well, hey, why do you need the money? What did you do to put yourself in this situation that you need the money? And those are all fair, uh, points to, to discuss. I think eventually we're all just going to kind of get used to this. I, I mean, I'm not going to get too mad about it because this is how shit works in just about every industry that prices gradually go up. It hasn't happened for a while. The UFC, they kind of did it. Uh, with a couple events to test us out, feel us out, see how we were going to respond. We ended up buying those events anyway. Um, now, and we made the argument, I think, that, hey, if you raise the price for some events and not others, you're telling us that there are different tiers to this shit. Now, I guess they're taking away that problem by just raising the price all the way across the board. And, hey, that's 
prices on stuff go up. So I'm not going to get too worked up about that. $5 isn't a huge uh, increase. It does, though, in the short term, it's going to make people look at the pay-per-views coming up and be, wait a minute, is this one worth an extra 5 bucks? But people will eventually stop doing that. They'll yeah, get is, used is to Is the, the new time price. still now? Is what they'll ask themselves? Yeah, yeah. People will ask themselves if the time is still now, and if the time is not now, when will the time be or have been? Uh, and everybody's going to have to come up with their own answers to that question. Uh, I guess... What I wonder when I heard about this, first of all, was you know how the the big uh, point everybody wants to get to is to be a champ or to be getting points on the pay-per-view, right? That's what you want to do if you're a fighter, to not only get your, your regular money, but to get a percentage of the pay-per-view. And we've seen, you know, in like Eddie Alvarez's contract, that kind of stuff came to light, how that thing works, where they'll say, if you get a dollar per buy for every buy over 300000 or something, you know, and then you get... $3 per buy for every buy over 600000 You know, that's, I don't think the exact numbers, but that's how it works. At least that's how it worked when they, when we just all got to look at Eddie Alvarez's contract. It doesn't allow for what if we raise the price so that we sell fewer buys overall, but we make more money on them. The fighter, if he still has that same language in his contract, he's not getting any more money out. It's kind of a bad deal for the fighter and the U more of that money is ending up in the UFC's pocket. Kind of seems like a deft little maneuver at that point, does it not? Yeah, surprise, surprise. Uh, I will say from my just recent experience, it d did feel like a kick in the shorts to call up the pay-per-view man and hear the automated voice tell me that this one was going to cost me fifty nine ninety nine. Is that how you do it? You do it over the phone? Yeah. Like my dad? Yeah. You can do it on the internet, you know? No. And then you can look at the nude events that are available oh. for purchase. Oh, wow. Okay, well, I'm going to have to have you show me how to do that Yeah. after... After we're done here. Turns out there are a lot more horny housewives out there than you'd think. Hmm. Well, that's good to know. Yeah. Next question comes to us from Mike Lutzhoeft. He nice. writes. He Nailed writes, it. Uh, Did we just see the fastest instance of MMA god interference embodied by Tiago Alves kicking the soul out of Jordan Meehan after his stuntman front roll? Alves. Don't. Tiago Alves. Man, don't fuck with me when I'm over here just trying to get through everybody's weird diction, okay? <laughs> you you can taunt me about not saying Alves, but man, I rolled right through fastest instance of MMM. See, I can't do it twice in a row, but fastest instance of MMA god interference embodied by. That ain't bad. I mean, come on that over here. Okay. It's not like Shakespeare's writing us these fucking emails, man. <laughs> Anyway, it continues, don't tempt the gods doing that shit inside the octagon. Okay, <laughs> that's actually, I, that's a funny way of putting it, because that role, like, the little battle role thing he does, as yeah. if he's Bruce Willis, and the terrorists are shooting <laughs> at him, you're like, okay, are you are you just feeling it, Jordan Meehan? Like, he's real, like, he was messing Tiago Alves up, yes. uh, and then he just gets caught with that kick, and just game over for him immediately, went right down, had no answer for that. Uh, that was surprising to me. Yes, it was. And I was I actually when I saw it, I started to think that uh, if the plug ever gets pulled on Dundasso, like as if, you know, just in case we ever come up with like rules that we are going to enforce uniformly across the board and aggressively and I have to come up with a new fighting system. I'm thinking about going with body shots only. Huh. Because okay. uh like you can you can win a fight that you basically have no business winning just like with a well placed, well timed body shot. Because Tiago Alves was getting it handed to him he in was. the first round there. Uh and then he connects with the uh with the body shot and, and Jordan Meehan just goes down like you know, like he hit the off switch on him. And it did seem like maybe some retribution or like karma 
And like the last thing that you want to do is to do the Bruce Willis battle roll and then immediately get stopped. Yeah, that's a that's a bummer. When that I would happens. chalk that up to a learning experience okay. for a, for a fellow as relatively useful as Jordan or youthful as as Jordan Meehan. Yeah, youthful but not inexperienced when you look at his record. Uh, how about the ending of that one? Because he goes down there pretty much right away. Uh, and he's down, his knees aren't down, but his, his hand is down on the mat, and Alves comes flying in with a knee. It's tough to tell. Did it actually connect cleanly with his head? Did, did Mian pick his hand up before? It's one of those things where it makes you realize, like, okay, if he's throwing that knee at your head, and you, out of instinct, pick up your hand off the mat to defend, uh, your head, you've made it a legal blow, where right. it was an illegal blow when he first attempted it. It's kind of, it highlights the, Really difficult gray areas for stuff like that. Yeah, a sport that's uh, like difficult to have good rules for and difficult to judge, I think, is what we've learned here today. We've all learned a very important lesson. So fuck it. Just throw up our hands and say uh, fuck it. Tiago Alves, by the way, like seemed like a more mature dude in, in like the limited exposure we got to him. He did. In his post-fight interview. Uh, like he used to be sort of a young firebrand, and now it seemed like perhaps he'd grown up a bit. Yeah, maybe, you know, and I'll, I'll say, you know, I spent a little time in, in Florida with Tiago Alves, uh, doing a, a magazine cover story a few years ago. And it did seem back then it was, it was right before he was going to fight GSP. Uh, and he seemed like a dude who loved food and women, uh, not necessarily in that order and was really having a good time being a young fighter, making some pretty good money. Uh, and it seems like maybe he's done a little bit of growing up since then. Although I will say that when I saw him in Florida this last time, it took about 20 seconds for our conversation to, to turn to food. So. Maybe that part of it. I still don't know how that dude makes 170. Uh, the next question comes from Jeff Reining. He writes, let's hear it for the man who's going to make all the fighters in the UFC's lightweight division humble. Let's also hear it for the man who is going to learn Spanish in a few months so that all the senoritas fall in love with him. Hell, let's also hear it for the badass motherfucker from New York who walks out to the damn Sopranos theme song despite the fact that the Sopranos takes place in New Jersey. Oh, and also the man who gets little love in the lightweight division, even though he's four and one in the last year, raging Al Iaquinta handled Joe Lozon on Saturday night. And I think it's about time he gets some goddamn respect around here. Am I right, fellas? I know I am. Now discuss this shit. Uh, is Jeff Reining a, a family member of raging Al? It's, perhaps like it's a pretty good email and like, uh, hits a lot of the high notes here for, <laughs> for raging Al Iaquinta. Can you had a nice performance there on Saturday night? I really want to hear what his Spanish sounds like when he learns it, especially in that accent. Uh, cause you could hear him at the press conference being like, I'm going to learn Spanish. I'm going to go to Mexico. All the senoritas are going to love me. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, that's going to be awesome. Hear him try to pick up on some senoritas. You think he and Ray Longo are sitting around in Matt Sarah's office listening to Rosetta Stone? Don't Matt Sarah's Sarah is not around. Biblioteca. <laughs> Me llamo Raging Al. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. but you know you got to give him some credit for that one, man. He looked good against Joe Lozon. Uh, credit also to Joe Lozon for having a sense of humor about it. I don't know if you saw his yes, tweets where he's talking about how he'd worked on defending the overhand right, and he thinks he he blocked one through twenty five and twenty six through thirty something must have got through somehow. Uh, Joe Lozon took a hell of a beating there toward the end too, and it seemed like one of those things where. The dude's not going to go down, and the referees might have a little bit of a bias toward, like, well, as long as he's still standing, I can't stop it. Finally, Mark Goddard jumps in there, 
uh, when it seems like Lausanne is, has been out on his feet for the last dozen punches or so. And you could see on Lausanne's face, he seemed a little grateful that, that he had decided to step in there and stop it when he did. But yeah, what do you do with Ally Aquita now? What do you do with your boy Raging Al? Uh, well, as I put on Twitter this weekend, my favorite thing about him is that he looks like an old snapshot of your grandpa from like back when he yes. used to fight Golden Gloves. It's <laughs> yes. my favorite thing about him. Just but a, like a black and white, where he's standing there with his yeah. fists up by his face, a really scary look on his face, in a YMCA gymnasium somewhere. I guess you can't like ignore the guy anymore now that he's got you know he's got these back to back wins over uh, Joe Lausen and, and Ross Pearson, and the guy's six and one in his last seven fights. So. Uh, you would think that uh, that you would have to give him some kind of a name opponent, some kind of an, an opportunity to sort of get over with the fans and make his make his name as a top lightweight here. Someone we got another email this week. Someone suggesting maybe uh, uh, Eddie Alvarez for for Ally Quinta, but I saw that now Gilbert Melendez is is advocating for an Eddie Alvarez fight, which actually, when you think about it makes a lot of sense so yeah. i don't know that he'll pick up that one but i mean come on man you're fighting at 155 there's no shortage of dudes that's true there's a lot of dudes around uh i'll just say as a last thing here on this uh if there is not a bar somewhere on long island with a drink called the raging owl then somebody has fucked up because that is a no-brainer to me man come on the, the raging owl and maybe maybe it's one of those drinks that's on fire for a short period of time you know the kind of thing I'm talking about. I would go as far as to say perhaps someday the Long Island, the greater Long Island area will luck out and there will be a tavern called Raging Owls. <laughs> okay. You know, maybe a, a, the, the East Coast version of Cubby Sampson's. Yes. Yeah. On uh, Wednesday and Friday nights, you can go there and get Raging Owls meatballs. <laughs> all right. Yeah. yeah. I think I it's like $12 it. all you can eat on those things. Where can I invest? <laughs> That's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, or a concern to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you might as well sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday to catch you up on what we miss from Monday to Friday when, when we're not actively recording the podcast. Uh, it's a good time, man. You'll like it. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. You put your down all your fear to someone who's not even here. It's all these ghosts you cannot hear. It's my Well, Ben, did you have a favorite Nick Diaz moment during the UFC 183 fight against Anderson Silva? I think that the popular choice would probably be the Stockton lean. Mm -hmm. uh, but I would actually go with the part where he walked over to the cage and leaned against it to try to call Anderson Silva in. Uh, shades of UFC 153 there when Anderson Silva employed the same mind games against Stefan Bonner. It seemed like uh, there were a couple times when Nick Diaz did some Anderson Silva-esque stuff. Yeah, he uh, kind of out out old school Anderson Silva to Anderson Silva. Yeah. Uh, the, the weird thing he was doing with his elbow where he's jutting his yeah, elbow. Like out his at weird you. samurai stance. Which yeah. I saw later people online were like, Oh, that's like an old Kung Fu trick to try to break people's hands. Okay. Uh, I don't know. I guess I'll take their word for it. Fine. Um, yeah, there were a lot of good moments there. Uh, and just a lot of Diaz gonna Diaz moments out there. You know, is one of those fights where I, 
I kept waiting for it to jump up a notch. And it never really did. I mean, it made up for some of that in just sheer weirdness. And there were times where, you know, Nick Diaz is kind of doing some Anderson Silva stuff to Anderson Silva. He's talking all this shit to him. Anderson Silva is, you know, kind of hanging back, picking his moments. And when he does decide to to come forward with some offense, he's having some pretty good success there. And I was wondering, like, is this like is this like a stepbrothers moment where they're looking at each other going, do we just become best friends? Because uh, you don't really realize like how similar some of their tactics are until you see them doing them to each other. Yeah, and you know what? This fight, I guess, got weird enough for me that I didn't need it to be anything else. Yeah. Kind of like a, a short story when it's funny. Like if a short story is funny, it doesn't have to be anything else. Yeah. It just has to be funny enough. Which is tough to do hard in its own right. So this, this thing was weird enough that like I was kind of mesmerized by it the entire time, to be honest with you. Uh, I also expected like a complete fucking blowout for Anderson Silva. Like I expected Anderson Silva to knock Nick Diaz out in the first round. So the fact that Nick Diaz was able to come out and have a little bit more success than, uh, I personally expected him to coming in at almost a four to one underdog, like, I was happy with this fight, man. Like it was, it was more entertaining than I thought it was going to be. It was, uh, it was more competitive than I thought it was going to be, even though I think personally I gave all, all five rounds to Anderson Silva that, uh, a lot of them were close rounds. Uh, so like I thought that this was, uh, that this was better than I, than I had hoped for. And you're right that Nick Diaz totally put on a show, which I think was what, uh, we kind of needed for him to do in this fight. And I would say that, you know, in the wake of this fight, even though Anderson Silva won his comeback fight after taking so much time off to to rehab from a career-threatening injury, like Nick Diaz has kind of dominated the post-fight storylines a little bit, which is sort of like that kind of makes this the classic Nick Diaz fight in that uh, he came in, he proved that he was tough as hell, he didn't win, he did a lot of crazy stuff, uh, and in the wake of that, like that seems okay, right? Like so... Do you think we're getting to the point with Nick Diaz now where people are going to tune in to watch him, like, regardless of whether or not he wins or loses? Because I, I he's we, lost three in a row now. I think we got to that point a while back. I, I don't think that, you know, and I wrote a piece up on MMA Junkie that's up there today that, you know, at this point, the appeal of Nick Diaz is not even about wins and losses. And I think we've all kind of made our peace with that, uh, whether we've said it explicitly or not. You know, I mean, for one thing, you can say that, he, yeah, he's lost three straight. But look, at I mean, the one was a, a pretty close decision to Carlos Condit that could have gone the other way. And the other two were to George St. Pierre and Anderson fucking Silva. So, you know, that's still not too bad. Uh, I think that uh, you, you feel like, though, with Nick Diaz, you're not just in it to see what he's going to do in the fight. There's a whole package that comes with a Nick Diaz fight week experience, you know, that he's probably going to skip something that he's supposed to do. Uh, that's going to be some newsworthy shit. When he actually does show up, he'll probably give one of those weird rambling answers about why he wasn't at some other shit, and that's going to be newsworthy too. You know, he's he's just a fun presence to have around all the way through. And then in the fight, you know, he's he's going to make something happen. You know, like when even when he was in uh, in the fight against George Saint Pierre, where you know that one was pretty much one sided. George Saint Pierre doing his thing. Uh, even then, Nick Diaz finds a way to to make some stuff interesting. So like, I feel like. You're always going to get your money's worth out of him, and that's why he rightly insisted that the UFC pay him that way, even if his record has not been that great of late. I just wonder how much he, how much more he's going to want to do this, because it seems like when you hear him talk, you're you get to the point where you start to feel like, all right, the only reason he's doing this is because he's every once in a while he's going to decide he needs the money. He'll he'll come back, he'll fight one, make a bunch of money, go away for a while, and then feel like, okay, I need to make another half million dollars in one night. 
I'll come back and do another one. And that starts to feel a little gross to me. Yeah, really, though, who hasn't gone to the airport to catch a plane and then decided, you know what, I'm good. I'm just going to stay here. <laughs> okay, do you believe that he actually went to the airport? No, but that's part of the decision? story, right? Like that he yes. went to the airport and just and didn't get on the plane? Decided, I want to sleep in my own bed tonight. And turned around and went home. And the airport is in Sacramento. Uh, and, you know, he drove there from Stockton. So you know, my wife made a good point, though, that uh, after the fight, when we were sitting there watching Nick Diaz, uh, you know, on the mic afterwards, and her saying, you know, I don't think he probably misses that many flights home. Uh, yeah, <laughs> when you, those flights, when you okay. book him the return flight from Las Vegas back to, to Northern California, I bet he makes that one. Uh, well, I want to spend a few minutes talking about Anderson Silva, but before we do that, I want to also briefly talk about uh, the reaction of Nick Diaz and the reaction of Nick Diaz's corner when the decision to this fight gets read, uh, because uh, – I thought it was pretty obvious that Anderson Silva won this fight. Yeah, I thought it was surprising that Gilbert Melendez keeps telling him that he's doing great. Uh, and then in the post-fight, Nick Diaz and Nick Diaz's corner act like they always act when one of their team members loses a fight. And then Nick Diaz, I guess maybe to his credit, I don't know, gets on the mic and like says really similar stuff. That he's then he, that you know he says similar stuff that to what he always says when he loses doesn't understand how they're judging these fights out here when he just lost to Anderson Silva like I you know I guess I was surprised that he clowned Anderson Silva as much as he did and then I guess I was surprised after the fight that like his response to losing to Anderson Silva was like no nah, man I actually won that. I mean, won I every know, round. Yeah, I don't know why I expected different. I guess maybe because it was Anderson Silva, but I mean I guess you gotta. Got to give him his props, man. Like, he's not changing the, the Nick Diaz experience for anybody. No, no, he absolutely is not. And, you know, even afterwards where Joe Rogan is trying to guide the interview toward, are you going to retire? Is this it for you? And Nick Diaz is just going to going to answer, you know, the questions that are in his head. Or, like, or he just sees it as like, okay, Joe Rogan's going to talk, and then it's my turn to talk. And Joe Rogan can talk about what he wants, and then I'll get to talk about what I want. And that's how it works. Uh, you know, and he kind of did that same thing at the post-fight press conference. Where, you know, that's just the Nick Diaz playbook. I don't know if any of us should be surprised with that. I was though, like, when your corner is telling you, you know, Gilbert Melendez is sitting there telling you throughout the entire fight, perfect. You're doing, don't change a thing. Don't change anything. You're doing great. And I wonder if that affects his, his fighting style, if that affects, you know, what he's willing to go out there and try to do. Uh, because I don't know. I mean, the entire time Gilbert Melendez is saying that, I'm like, First of all, I disagree. Second of all, can't you see that it would be at least close enough that you don't want to tell him that you, cl you clearly won that one? And plus, you guys have been through this shit before. You never think you lose any decisions, and you, you end up losing, especially if you're Nick Diaz, quite a few that are close like that. Shouldn't you at some point switch up your mindset and be like, hey, man, I thought you won, but you don't know about these judges, man. You better turn it up a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> fair point, I guess. Well, let's talk a little bit about Anderson Silva. Uh, obviously he wins this return fight for himself. Uh, he looked pretty good. Um, he dominated mostly, I thought, but like, are we like full on into a situation now where we're dealing with an Anderson Silva that's in decline? Is the cat out of the bag about that? Because, you know, prior to this fight, we had thought that, uh, or we had heard anyway that the UFC was, was thinking about making him the number one contender to the middleweight title. We're going to talk about the middleweight division more later in the show, obviously, but you know, I guess maybe that plan was derailed by another injury to, to Chris Weidman, but like, uh, I watched this fight and came away from it thinking, man, if this was the, the, the Anderson Silva of a few years ago, he would have finished this fight. And now I'm not so sure, like, even though he left us feeling like he will probably fight again, I'm not sure that, that I want to see him try to fight any of the real elite, uh, fighters in the middleweight division. 
Okay, I think partly, though, don't you have to cut him a little bit of slack because this was his first fight coming back from that injury? Sure. I mean, maybe this was the fight where he knocks a little bit of rust off. Uh, and maybe he, I mean, I'm not saying he goes back to being the old Anderson Silva, but maybe after this one, he gets a little closer. So we don't necessarily know about that. I'd also say, though, I was surprised, you know, when they announced the decision and he just breaks down, you know, like sobbing, falling down on the ground, like it's the greatest moment of his life. And that's when I kind of started to realize, wait a minute, this meant something different than we thought it did. Uh, and at least to him. And it makes sense once, you know, once I started to think about it, especially after talking to Corey Hill about dealing with his experiences with the exact same injury where he was saying, you know, one of the reasons he felt like he needed to come back and fight and continue on fighting was because if you don't, then you end up looking back at like this incident as I had this horrible injury and it ran me out of the sport. And that's a way more traumatic memory than I had this horrible injury and you know what? I overcame it. I worked through it, I came back, and I fought again. And it seemed like that's what was going on with Anderson Silva at that moment. Because on paper, you look at, okay, a decision over Nick Diaz, you know, a guy who's from a lower weight class, hasn't fought in a couple years, and is on a two-fight losing streak when you beat him. That should not be a real highlight for Anderson Silva. I mean, he's destroyed bigger opponents, better opponents, and not had anywhere near this reaction. I think that reaction tells you that this was this one was for Anderson. Yeah, and if anything, I thought that was kind of a nice moment for uh, a guy that in the past has been so enigmatic and and has been kind of aloof at times, uh, and you know is not necessarily enamored with the like the media experience. Yeah, not necessarily that into to that part of it. So I thought it was it was fun. I mean, I don't know if fun's the right word, but I thought it was good to that to see him like experiencing some some genuine emotion. Uh, and you know, you did get the feeling that this was a big deal for him. So I kind of, uh, I enjoyed getting that sort of, you know, a look at Anderson Silva that we don't always get. What do you do with the guy now though, man? Like, you know, he's kind of friends with, with Jacare and Lyoto Machida, although, uh, he seemed to be, you know, at least hinting that he might think about fighting one of those guys. He was like disappointed with them that they wanted to fight him. And then there was that remark right after the fight about his, his, his real, real friends. friends. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I don't know what you do with him. I don't know. Does he fight someone in the top five? Do you really want to see him fight Luke Rockhold or Yoel Romero or somebody like that? Like, could you put him in there with Musasi? Like, could he fight Dan Henderson, uh, in, in a, a senior tour rematch? Uh, I don't, I mean, does he go up to, to 205 where maybe like there are some, better matchups in a weird way uh, for him. So I, it's like kind of a, a, I don't know, man. I feel like it's kind of a quandary to figure out what to do with the guy who's going to be 40 for sure by the next time he fights. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of it will depend on what does he want to do. Does he Is he going to come to Dana White in a couple of months and say, put me on a track toward the title? Uh, or is he going to prefer to go the senior tour route? Because I think... You know, there is an argument to be made for a little bit of the senior tour fun fights route for Anderson Silva at this point. Because honestly, I don't really have any interest right now in seeing him up there against Chris Weidman again. Uh, and while I think it would be maybe a, a, a fight that Luke Rockhold or Yoel Romero would welcome to fight Anderson Silva right now, especially after what they saw against Nick Diaz, I don't know if that's uh, anything that I personally want to see. And I think that the, like we said before, the Tito Ortiz, Stefan Bonner thing in Bellator proves that there's more of a market out there for that senior tour stuff than we like to think there is. You can't, I mean, you could probably make good use of Anderson Silva as on where you got a pay-per-view, you got a title fight at the top, but it's not necessarily the best title fight. You know, an instance like maybe where you got Ronda Rousey versus Kat Zingano or something, uh, 
all alone at, at USC 184, I believe it is. Um, and you need something else. You need something in that co-main event spot. I don't know, man. Anderson Silva versus Dan Henderson doing it again, brother. That one, that one might help you sell those extra few pay-per-views, right? Yeah, I think that you're right about that. Like any fight with Anderson Silva in it is probably going to be marketable for, for the foreseeable future. Uh, so maybe that is a, a role that he falls into. I don't know. I, that's in the, you know, in, during this comeback, it doesn't, it hasn't seemed like he's been that interested in the title and, and like, it, it seems like maybe he's ready to, to kind of be a money weight. We'll have to see or, what happens. You know, his son is going to talk him into retirement. Yeah. Which, you know, that could happen as well. Uh, let's do, are you fucking kidding me, Ben? And then we'll move on to round number two. Uh, this week, Ben, my, are you fucking kidding me? Maybe a thing to, to file in the, maybe this dude really is too nice to be a pro fighter after all file, uh, Tyron Woodley's declaration that he didn't want to take 30% of Kelvin Gaslam's money after Gaslam badly missed weight, uh, for their fight, uh, in Tyron Woodley's own, own words, he said, whatever the commission was going to take from this kid, I don't want it. That's his money. These training camps toss cost too much. I've been on the table crying because I couldn't pay the bills, so I can't bring myself to take whatever percentage from him. First of all, are you fucking kidding me if there's anybody out there who who still doesn't like Tyron Woodley? I think that's a you problem, uh, not necessarily a Woodley problem. And second of all, man, how about Tyron Woodley for uh, MMA fighter union president? Okay. Stick, sticking up for, the, uh, for his co-workers here. Or at least some kind of fighter rep. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. Also, uh, Chad, I want you to know that if we're ever in a situation where a governing body wants to give me 30% of your money, I am taking that shit I would not expect any less from you, which is why I try to keep my earnings from this podcast as low as possible for that day that I have to try to give you 30%. 30% of nothing is still nothing. <laughs> well, Chad, this week, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me goes out to Misha Tate. We mentioned it earlier, but Misha Tate said that that, that punch from Sarah McMahon in the first round broke her orbital bone, which, as I like to put it, broke her damn face, man. Uh, and that was in the first round. And whether you agree with the decision or not, she came back, fought hard rounds two and three, arguably... Uh, won the fight, definitely won the fight, uh, according to the official records. But are you fucking kidding me? That is some badass shit from Misha Tate, man. Get her face broke in the first round, then come back and bring it to an Olympic silver medalist in rounds two and three to win the fight. And then they don't even get the fight of the night. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? The rare back-to-back positive, are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? That could be a first. Just over here innovating, as usual. That's right. Well, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. The moral habit is for holes. It's under construction. And the more you strain, the less you can control. So create obstruction. The lives of the soul carefully scrutinized. Because you Chad, we had ourselves a couple of catchweight affairs at UFC 183. John Lineker, habitual uh, weight misser, habitual line stepper in that regard, uh, scheduled for a 125-pound bout, comes in at 130. Nice even round number. Uh, then you got over there at the welterweight division, even worse, 
Kelvin Gastelum for his fight against the aforementioned Tyrone Woodley. 170 pounds, he comes in at 180. Now, with the pound allowance, that's nine pounds overweight. Junior middleweight. <laughs> Junior middleweight, indeed. Man, that really kind of, uh, kind of fucks with some things here, and it makes me wonder a couple things. One, uh, are these the kind of instances that where the UFC should be able to tell these guys, look, stop it. You're not a flyweight anymore. You're not a welterweight anymore. We're telling you you have to go up and fight in these other divisions. Uh, is that the UFC's role here? Um, also, are these kind of cautionary tales? Is it better for the, for some of these guys to, instead of failing and failing badly to make this weight, uh, should they just go up a, a division to begin with? Because otherwise, man, uh, you're giving up your money. You're looking bad even when you win. Uh, it just, it seems like the risks, if you're not absolutely sure you can make that weight, uh, do not justify the rewards. Yeah. Uh, you know, from a philosophical standpoint, obviously it pains me to say that, that the company should be able to exert even more authority and, and more power over people that are, uh, officially independent contractors. But this weight issue, man, like, uh, this is an issue where I can legitimate, legitimately see the promoter kind of having a say because, uh, if you miss weight, it can seriously screw up their business. You know what I mean? Like, you basically can't have John Lineker at flyweight anymore. Like, you basically can't do it because he keeps winning. Just beat Ian McCall on this, uh, on this pay-per-view and, uh, he seems like a guy who's who would shape up as, if nothing else, an entertaining fight against Demetrius Johnson, the champion at 125 pounds. But it's like, uh, to use a word that Dana White likes a lot, you literally can't book him a championship fight against Demetrius Johnson because you have no idea if he'll show up with the ability to make 125 pounds. Yeah. So like. I don't know, man. I kind of have to side with the promoter in, the, in these individual instances where, like, you have two guys in Kelvin Gastelum and John Lineker who should be players, right, at their individual weight classes. But because of kind of a chronic uh, or recurring inability to make weight, like, they kind of can't be. So I think the best thing for them is to go up go up a weight class. And, and if you're the promoter, I think you're kind of within your rights to, to say that they have to. Yeah, and especially in the case of uh, Lineker, look how he already messed up the flyweight division, right? Because you got this fight between he and Ian McCall. It would seem like on paper the kind of fight where the winner could be put into a title shot. Uh, Ian McCall has that history with Demetrius Johnson. But then he shows up overweight, beats Ian McCall, and now it's like the worst of all worlds. You can't put McCall in that title fight now because he just lost. And you can't put Lineker in that fight because, like you said, you don't know if he can even make the weight. There's also the issue, too, of like the storyline that comes out about you after you miss weight. Because with Lineker, the story was he just stopped. He, he, just, he, you know, he just said, screw it, I'm done, I'm not going to make that weight, and stopped and, and came in there knowing he was going to be way heavy. And, you know, regardless of the... the you know, the whatever gray areas there may be and actually how that story unfolded, if that's the narrative that gets put out there about you, that is bad. Yeah. You know, everybody's going to end up pissed off at you and they're going to think of you as, you know, kind of mentally weak or at least not super professional uh, that you just said, screw it, I'll, I'll take the fine, whatever, and I know that this guy's not going to refuse the fight. And with Gastelum, missing weight by that much, man, I mean, that's one where – if you were the other guy, you gotta, you'd be well within your rights to really consider whether you should still take this fight. 
Plus, with him, there's the added element of we heard that he went to the hospital on Friday. He looked utterly miserable at the weigh-ins. Did you see him at the weigh-ins? No. Like, just like a sullen teenager, kind of like who's been forced to go to church with the flu uh, and is not even trying to hide how much he doesn't want to be here. And then even when he showed up on fight night, I mean, Dana White was saying, hey, he looked much better. You know, he seemed to have gotten over it. You know, you see him just kind of jogging around the cage a little bit before that fight starts. And you're like, wait a minute, what are we about to watch here? This seems like it could be a bad, bad idea. Now, he performed well enough in the fight. He did not look like a guy who was just completely sick and didn't belong in there. Um, but at the same time, I mean, that's your big opportunity, right, if you're Gaslam. And at some point, don't you have to wonder if you were really sick and you couldn't make the weight, uh, you couldn't even get close, and you couldn't really perform in the fight, wouldn't you be better off? Like, at what point would you be better off pulling out of the fight altogether Letting everybody be mad at you in the short term, but saying like, hey, guys, sorry, you know, this kind of stuff happens. You get sick sometimes. You can't do anything about it rather than going out there at a fraction of your usual abilities and losing. Yeah. Uh, for what it's worth, I did see somebody tweet. I think it was Casey Lydon tweeted that uh, Gaslam got down to 173 or maybe 174 that he was, you know, he was closer than 10 pounds over, uh, but the doctors made him rehydrate. So, uh, I mean, it's not he didn't. He didn't fail to cut 10 pounds, which is sort of like... Yeah. Okay. Like, he didn't even... That makes it seem like he didn't even start. <laughs> yes. But, like, it seems like he, he cut as, made, as much weight as he could. Uh, and But then, like, because of safety issues, doctors made him rehydrate. But that alone brings up a bunch of additional questions. And, you know, I think you're probably... If you're Kelvin Gaslam, maybe you are better off going up to 185. But that's kind of a shame, too, because, like... He'd won five fights in a row, I think, in the UFC uh, prior to uh, this loss to to Woodley, and and you know was kind of a surprise winner of the Ultimate Fighter over Uriah Hall, and uh, uh, this you know had he been victorious here, this would be the sort of fight kind of like Ally Quinta, where like you couldn't take the guy lightly anymore, you couldn't ignore him anymore. This was going to be a fight that if he won it, you'd think would really earn him a fight with. Uh, with a really big name and give him the opportunity to, to really uh, show what he has at welterweight. But now you go up to middleweight, obviously you're coming in uh, with a, a decent track record at welterweight, but you sort of have to start over and start over, frankly, as a guy who had a hard time making a name for himself to begin with. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that uh, the name part is the least of your concerns there. But I, I still think if you look at this situation where if you're Kelvin Gaslam and you look back months from now and be like, okay, wait a minute. So my only professional loss is the time where I was sick and I fought Tyron Woodley. Like, how are you not going to feel a little bitter about that, about the way that unfolded? And I don't know. I mean, it, it does seem like it raises these safety questions, right? And we saw the same thing with uh, Jimmy Hedis, right, who – uh, he was supposed to fight Diego Brandau on the prelims of this one and got sick backstage, passed out. And from what we heard, a doctor cleared him. And then the commission was like, no, we're not really going to do a fight with a guy who just passed out. And, I mean, when do you start drawing the line there for safety's sake and say, like, wait a minute, if you pass out within, you know, 24 hours or like 30 hours or something of the event, then we're probably not going to let you fight. Yeah, and you know what, man? There's just so many questions uh, about not only these instances, but weight cutting. Because you know, you talked about the the, the safety issue. Uh, you could also, I think, talk about a monetary issue because obviously, people in the industry have mixed feelings. There are mixed reactions to Mike Dolce, uh, but they did mention on the pay per view broadcast that Kelvin Gaslam doesn't 
bring Mike Dolce in. I believe he worked with him a couple times or once maybe, but doesn't bring him in anymore because it's too expensive. He can't afford it. So like, uh, you know, regardless of what you think about Mike Dolce, you're, you've still got a guy who's a, uh, up until just now had been a comer at, at 170 pounds, like still feels like he can't afford a nutritionist, which yeah. is kind of a sad commentary and dovetails with what Woodley said about not wanting to take the, the 30%. So it's like you got all these different questions about whether guys should be cutting this weight or whether or not they're better off, you know, uh, even performance wise staying at a, at a higher weight class and, and, you know, not being paid enough money to bring in a nutritionist. Uh, it's hard to even know really where to start, honestly. You know, and that was a good advertisement for Mike Dolce provided by Joe Rogan. They're talking about how, you know, you ought to bring this guy in. But I question necessarily the statement where he says, like, oh, he felt like Mike Dolce was too expensive. But, you know, what's more expensive is getting fined 30% of your purse. I don't even know if that's necessarily true, Uh, you know, depending on what Mike Dolce charges you because – uh, if you're a guy coming off of the Ultimate Fighter, you know how those contracts are when you come off of that show, right? You're not making a ton of money uh, right out the gate there. So 30% of that purse might not be uh, more expensive than than hiring Mike Dolce. We don't, we don't necessarily know. I mean, the, his reported uh, payout was uh, $21,000. So it's not like he's out there, you know, making six figures uh, to do these fights and, and losing a ton of money that way. Yeah, and again, just a weird situation because, uh, you know, most people make weight for starters and it, and we don't oftentimes see, uh, big time contenders have such a hard time making weight. So like kind of a, uh, a costly loss for both divisions to have those guys have to kind of vacate and, and go to, to higher weight classes. Although, like you said earlier, it does seem to hit flyweight a lot you know, a lot harder than it would hit welterweight where there's kind of a plethora of, of, uh, contenders. And, uh, I guess we're lucky we got John Dodson coming back from injury to, to stand in against Demetrius Johnson. We've got some time to, uh, to figure out what exactly to do at 125 pounds. But also though, a tough one last thing here that you got to mention for John Lineker is to make him go up to bantamweight because you think about it for one thing, I think he's listed as five, two, five, three, you know, not, not a, a huge guy going to be undersized in that division. And what's his big thing that everybody talks about? His big asset, uh, as a fighter at flyweight, his punching power, right? right? Now you yeah. make him go up to a division where everybody's a little bit bigger. Uh, you wonder if he's going to still have that in his back pocket. Right. Especially since up at bantamweight, it's not like you're dealing with guys who are, uh, really that much slower. You know, you got <laughs> yes. TJ Dillashaw hanging around, uh, seeming like he, he's just as fast as a lot of those guys at 125. So it could be a tough spot for John Lineker. Uh, that's going to do it for round number two, though. We're going to get started with round number three right now. Kids just having fun. Ignore Ben, we've talked a lot recently about what an exciting time it is in the UFC middleweight division, uh, stacking contenders three and four and five deep for champion Chris Weidman. And then this past weekend, we had the return of Anderson Silva from a long injury layoff and the possibility that he could claim number one contender status if he beat Nick Diaz. Uh, but a lot of that talk was sidetracked 
a little bit earlier in the weekend when news broke that uh, Chris Weidman once again felled by injury, this time to his rib, uh, and that his scheduled bout against Vitor Belfort was going to have to be uh, at least postponed or, or rescheduled. Um, so that was kind of a bummer for the middleweight division because now it, it feels like you've got this log jam uh, that's been put on hold once again while the champion tries to get healthy. Uh, are we to the point yet where we need to start worrying about Chris Weidman's future in the same way that we worry about Cain Velasquez? You know, I, I don't know. I, you hate to make that judgment too soon, although it is something like – especially painful, isn't it, to see a guy like a young fighter who seems like this should be his time, the time should be now for Chris Weidman, right. and he can't get in there and defend it as often as he would like and really seize that, that opportunity to really make his money, make his mark on the sport. It just feels like so heartbreaking for him to watch that kind of stuff. Same with Cain Velasquez, to watch that keep happening to him uh, because you feel like you're watching the sand slip through the hourglass for right. him in some way, aren't you? Yeah, especially, you know, uh, he's he should have a lot of momentum right now. He just beat Anderson Silva twice in a row and then came back and had, you know, a fight against Lyoto Machida that a lot of people thought was the fight of the year in 2014. Uh, and he's a champion, and he's the guy who kind of needs to take hold with fans and become an established pay-per-view draw for the middleweight division to really kind of thrive. Uh, and you feel like he should be able to do that considering what he's accomplished in a relatively short time as being champion but uh, I think this is the third or fourth time he's had to pull out of a scheduled fight with a with an injury so that that kind of sets him back in in that regard and uh, he had been a guy that maybe fans had not been as eager as maybe they should have been to to latch on to him as a guy that they really wanted to to pay to watch fight uh, and you mentioned him being a young fighter like the guy's 30 years old at this point certainly that's not old for a mixed martial artist but it's also not like he's 23 it's not like he's a spring chicken so while I think you're right that like uh we're not quite to the point yet where we would maybe put him in Velasquez's category as being a guy who seems kind of perennially injured all the time uh but it is sort of a concern at this point and like I think you said a bummer for Chris Weidman who should be the guy carrying the banner in this division yeah and I mean I think I think it's three times by the way that he's pulled out Right. Like the first one was, well, first, I think it was he, he and Vitor were supposed to fight. Right. And then when Nevada announced that it was doing away with uh, TUEs for testosterone, right. uh, then that delayed the fight. And it was OK. It's going to be Weidman versus Machida. That got delayed when he had to have knee surgery. Uh, then it was supposed to be Weidman versus Vitor in fall of 2014. He broke his hand in training. And now what is it? His ribs uh, that are injured now. So. I mean, some of those are on Weidman, but when Vitor kind of gets out there on Instagram and makes the case about, oh, this guy keeps pulling out of the fights, he conveniently leaves out his own issues uh, and some of that stuff. But, I mean, in a way, I guess I feel like middleweight, if, if there's ever a time where middleweight could do without the champion for just a little while, while you know, while he deals with some injuries, I guess it would be now, uh, except for, you know, you had that awesome looking bout between Uel Romero and Jacare Souza. Jacare. Uh, that had to get scrapped. When Maybe they can reschedule that one in. Krakow. Krakow. Yeah, we were told, by the way, that we're pronouncing Krakow wrong. I don't give a damn. Don't even care. Nope. Don't even care. Uh, it's What is it? Crack off? Is that how you say it? That's stupid. Because that sounds like vodka. You, I'm going to be honest with you right now. You sound stupid right now <laughs> saying that. Not like top shelf vodka, but also not like well vodka. Like, oh, what are you drinking, man? Oh, crack off and soda, man. Like, 
Okay, it's I can respect that. Yeah, I mean, you're not you're not balling exactly, but you know, you're you're not out by the train tracks either. Uh, I think though that like if you look around all the stuff that's going on in Middleway, it does give you an interesting uh, question of what what do you do right now because. Vitor Belfort was saying it seemed like there were conflicting reports. I saw Greg Savage saying that Belfort was saying, I'll fight Mark Munoz. I'll fight him. That's the guy I'll fight. <laughs> Which seems a little weird, like you're just going out there and picking your guy. But also that he wouldn't fight Machida. And this is understandable to some extent because it would be, have been such a wild style difference between what he was preparing for with Weidman. Uh, and it felt like, okay, Mark Munoz would be a little closer to that. So you can make the change easier. But also him saying like, okay, I'll fight anyone as long as it's for the real title. Which would involve like you know stripping Chris Weidman uh, due to these injuries and putting the, the title up for grabs. Which seems like something the UFC is maybe not really prepared to do just yet. So what would you do right now? Well, it can't be the real title, right? Unless Chris Weidman can never return. Unless, well, no, <laughs> unless we he did retires. With, and, we did it with Dominic Cruz, right? Like, right. Where, you know, where we stripped him of the title and said, okay, the, the interim title is now the real title. But as long as your actual champion is returning in a, you know, f- fairly expeditious fashion, uh, no matter what they call it, it's going to be the interim title until Vitor Belfort gets in there with, with Chris Weidman, whoever, whoever has the title. Uh, I was wondering, like, you know, obviously this is kind of a bummer f- for, for everybody to have this fight delayed. And I think it's understandable for Vitor Belfort to not want to, like, accept a late change of opponent and fight somebody completely different from Chris Weidman. But, like, is this a kind of a good thing for Vitor Belfort, though? Like, to, to have as much time as possible to get ready to fight Chris Weidman and to, to deal with whatever the stuff he had to deal with getting off TRT was, uh, because as you mentioned, he caused the original delay. We still haven't really seen the guy fight. We still don't know, uh, which kind of Vitor Belfort he will appear to be because I think, you know, as everybody knew in the years before TRT, like he was always a good fighter, but was a fighter that I think people had kind of a blueprint of how to beat. Uh, and then during the TRT years, obviously turned into this wicked monster who is kicking everybody's face off. Uh, and now he's off TRT again. So we don't really know, you know, how he's going to look, what kind of guy he's going to be. Does this sort of like really behoove him to like, have another delay to even have more time to try to get to get his stuff together, I guess you'd say. It might. I mean, I, I would say I'm sure that everybody feels like, you know, what's the best time to fight for a title now? Uh, so I, I'm sure he's not really too excited about that delay. But I could see the the argument to be made that, okay, we saw him kicking people upside their damn heads when he was the young dinosaur on the testosterone. And then, you know, every once in a while when we've seen photos pop up of him since he was forced to get off the testosterone, there was, it did seem like his physique maybe changed a little bit during that time. So, yeah, if he goes out there and he's able to do, like, the exact same kind of crazy, you know, head kick and awesomeness that he was able to do uh, back when he was, you know, only fighting in Brazil, if he can do that to somebody like Mark Munoz or something, then I guess it does give you a little extra oomph for that Chris Weidman title fight when it does finally come around. Although, I mean, I still think that if you look at Vitor, like how long he's been in the sport, how many years he's been doing it, he's got to feel like, damn it, I don't have this time to waste. You know, like Chris Weidman can maybe afford to to delay his career a little bit for these injuries. He's already the champion. He's kind of sitting there uh, at the top already. I need to get that title and really make the most of it while I can because especially now that the, the magic juice is outlawed, uh, that fountain of youth just doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, uh, and I guess if you wanted to go in the direction of an interim title, uh, 
although this doesn't seem like a tremendously uh, significant or serious injury to Chris Weidman. Uh, he tore some cartilage in his rib, which I'm sure hurts like a bastard. Uh, but actually, I've done that before, and it does hurt. Yeah, like a bastard. He, he indicates that he'll be he'll be back sooner rather than later. But like, uh, you could do a lot worse than you know to put the the interim title on basically anybody in the middleweight top five. Uh, it wouldn't be a travesty travesty to see any of these guys have the title for a while uh, I think frankly including Anderson Silva even though you know we suspect that maybe he's kind of uh, not the guy he used to be a, a few years ago it wouldn't it wouldn't be a crime if suddenly Anderson Silva was the champion again uh, but it is a bummer to see Chris Weidman uh, suffer these kind of career setbacks as he's had uh, I think it brings up another like kind of interesting side note though uh, to have Ronda Rousey versus Kat Zingano now as the the main event of this pay-per-view uh, because we just got the email like a week or two ago about, you know, somebody asking us about uh, whether Ronda Rousey had become the big breakout star that she w- was meant to be or, or had been rumored to be when she first got here. Well, now we've got a situation where she's headlining this pay-per-view. It's the only title fight on the card. Uh, you know, there's not going to be a lot of, of additional support for people uh, who might be looking to buy this now at the inflated price of $59.99. Are we going to get an opportunity here to see just what kind of draw Ronda Rousey really is? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I don't see how, like, we're at least going to say that that's what we saw uh, from this event once everybody gets done waiting for Dave Meltzer to tell him how many uh, pay-per-views this one sold. This is going to be one where people look at it and say, all right, let's see, is, is Rousey... Uh, who the UFC tells us she is. Is she as big a superstar as Dana White likes to claim or liked to claim before then he decided he liked to claim that about Conor McGregor, uh, who the numbers, you know, by the way, backed up uh, in his most recent outing, or does it start to seem like people aren't as into this as the UFC tells us? But I do think that this is, it's a kind of the deck stacked against her in on this one, because for one thing, people are already going to be bummed that this card was supposed to be something different. And now uh, whether you think it's still a good value for your money or not, it does feel like it's diminished from its original capacity because of the injury withdrawal. And also, it's close enough to the institution of the new $5 increase that people are still going to be thinking about it. Like we said, I think people will eventually forget about it, and that they'll just think of that as that's the price of a pay-per-view. But that won't happen for a few months, at least. I think right now, people are still going to be remembering that it used to be cheaper than it is now and performing that extra little calculus. Uh, and, you know, I also think that stuff like this, I saw several people on Twitter because this one is, uh, you know, in L.A. So it's one of those where we haven't seen a ton of events in California recently, especially a ton of big events. So uh, this is one where I think a lot of people who live in the Southern California area and were thinking about when the next time they want to go to a UFC event was. They saw this one. It looked like a great card on paper. They bought tickets pretty far out. Then this happens and you think, God damn it. I saw several people saying, like, you know, that they're – that's the last time they buy tickets that far out for, for a UFC event. Uh, well, at least you get Holly Holm and Raquel Pennington in the co-main now. So like ladies night, are you will, saying it's ladies night. I'm UFC saying that before I'm saying that, you know, at least there will be some kind of built in storyline here and Holly Holm and, and Ronda Rousey both win and cyborgs fighting the night before. Right. So there you go. It's a whole weekend. Yes, it is. Of the, what's going to happen in the women's band and weight division ladies for, weekend for the rest of the year. Uh, kind of brutal though. After that, this, <laughs> yeah, the pay-per-view okay. card. Well, I mean, uh, all right. we all like Jake Ellenberger and Josh Koscheck, but I mean, that that one does feel like maybe a little past its expiration date. Uh, Tony Ferguson and Yancey Medeiros—that's a sleeper right there, Chad. That's what that is. Oh yeah, El Kakui, right? Tony Ferguson is that his nickname? I think so. I wish it weren't. 
I really? Like, I like El Cucuy. I think that's a good nickname. What yeah, it, it, is. What is it What does it mean? It's the boogeyman in Spanish. Okay, well, I, I would actually prefer, well, I guess the boogie, the boogeyman in English was taken by Dean Lister, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, all right, well, let's do Just Saying Stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what is your Just Saying Stuff? Well, Chad, I know you saw this. Uh, in the prelims in one, UFC 183, Derek Brunson knocked out the big homie Ed Herman uh, 36 seconds into the fight. Then got up there and did a little dance, a little bit of a shimmy. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna say it was overly erotic the way you seem to feel about Hen and Browse, but I'm gonna say it was not not erotic. Uh, I'm just saying. We all kind of see what's happening when, when you go to explain that dance afterwards, you get like 80% of the way through saying that it was for the ladies and then kind of change it up to where it's for your girlfriend. We, I'm just saying, we all, we all know what happened there, Derek Brunson. Just saying. That might have been better, better one where you were better off just saying for the ladies and not correcting yourself. And then yeah. just explaining it when you got home. Cause <laughs> like you keep, go back and correct it and it kind of even looks worse. Yeah. You're saying keep that, like keep that, uh, that problem in the locker room as yeah. far as your relationship goes. <laughs> ben, this week I'm just saying, I know you've been feeling a little bit down. I, I know you've been kind of dragging ass a little bit, uh, with your MRSA and whatnot, your whole family having the flu. It's true. I've got a new technique to get you fired up. Make sure you finish strong. If you ever feel like you're just not going to make it through the, the, the podcast, maybe you've had a couple of, 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 uh, rough rounds. Uh, and that is, man, if you need a pick me up, you just let me know and I can come over there and pour a bunch of water down your shorts. What? Because that is what worked for Tiago Alves this weekend. He spent the first round, as we talked about, letting Jordan Meehan wear him around like a cat, like a button, like a, like a, like a hat in the cage. Uh, and then in between rounds, Andre Pedernaris dumped some water down his shorts. And the next thing you know, boom, TKO victory. I think it's the new training mask. <laughs> I'm just saying. Well, I'm just saying, you try and pour water down my pants and we're going to have a problem, my friend. How about if I give We're you 30% words. of my purse? <laughs> I will take 30% of your purse, <laughs> goddammit. Only if I get to pour water down your shorts. Well, then it's a negotiation. That, I'm, not, I'm uncomfortable with this business arrangement already. <laughs> That's going to do it for this week's Come In Event Podcast. We'll be back next week uh, to break down, well, to look ahead, I guess, to uh, whatever is happening on Valentine's Day. Yeah, a, there won't be shit to break down. UFC card on, on Saturday night, Valentine's Day, February the 14th. Because, Thanks, UFC. Because the UFC knows that your sorry ass doesn't have anything to do on Valentine's Day. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. Is this going to mess with your Valentine's Day plans with your wife? Well, luckily, since I've already gotten my wife to commit to a legal relationship, uh, we can probably figure something out. We can, we can reschedule. Uh, we can do it the night before. You're going to have to buy that sad little stuffed teddy bear that's holding a heart. But if you buy it the day after Valentine's Day, I bet you get a pretty cheap. Yeah, you get a good deal. Yes, yeah, lots of beanie babies on special. Day.